Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to. I must break this podcast, the fan podcast looking at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today, we're going back to 2012 and looking at the film Stash House. In this siege thriller, Dolph plays Andy Spector, a company man working for a drug syndicate who becomes intent on getting inside a recently foreclosed house containing valuable property belonging to his employers. Sean Ferris and Brianna Evigan play the young couple who buy the too-good-to-be-true home and must survive the night in their new dream home before it becomes their tomb. This is the house that we've always dreamed about. And we are getting this place at an absolute steal. I love it. Open this door now, we can all go home. Don't make this worse. Your lives aren't the only ones in the line here tonight. I'm your host, Sean, and joining me to discuss this one, uh, first time on the show, is Cam Sully, host of the Jacked Up Review podcast, as well as content contributor to the website Action Elite. Cam, thank you so much for joining me, man. Thank you, buddy. It was so much fun to prep for this one, because like you say, you know, it's it's an uncommon Dolph film that kind of flew under the radar. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, okay, so I think it's fair to say you you write for uh, Action Elite, and you also, uh, which is a really cool website. I'll just get that out of the way right now. Um, but then looking at, uh, at your show, I mean, your show, uh, Jacked Up Review Podcast. You guys, I was on an episode. Uh, we we recorded that almost about a year ago. Looking at great. Peter, yeah. yeah, but looking at Peter Berg. But you guys cover a little bit of everything in that show, right? It's, it's, it's action movies, it's directors, it's stars, it's TV shows, everything, right? Even food. Yeah. Very cool. Well, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, because I don't want to let that go. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your podcast and your approach and, uh, what are you guys, what are you guys doing over there? So I had been doing a little bit of podcasting on the side for a while. 
and with other pals and they weren't uh, really organized, but so I just said, well, to hell with it. You know, I'm not going to sit here and bitch around and just complain. I'm going to actually kind of do what I actually want to do with this and tackle various filmmakers who kind of don't get talked about enough. I was already listening to a bunch of podcasts just religiously and just loving uh, how they were detailing various films. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to either just pick a, a few themes each week. We're going to tackle a franchise that's kind of forgotten for better or worse. And then we'll talk about a cult favorite icon, whether it's a music band or a actor or a filmmaker. And uh, like you say, you know, podcasting is not easy, but it can be done. You got to actually just organize it, see who is part of your main uh, modus operandi, who is going to be part of your crew and, uh, you know, organize it. Don't let it go and, and let everyone make sure everyone's on the same page. Well, and I, I, I've listened to a few of your episodes. Yeah. And the, the one that, um, that I really dug was, uh, when, uh, I, I can't remember if you guys just did one episode devoted to the, devoted to the show, the shield, or if you guys did multiple episodes, but I know I listened to one of them and every point that you guys hit was, uh, was, was right on target. I mean, that is, I, I will say, I was talking about this with, with a buddy who's, who's been on the podcast quite a few times, but the shield Man, amazing show. I think it will go down as being one of the greatest television shows of all time. It's very difficult to watch in uh, in some respects. But what is so amazing about it is the storylines that are uh, introduced and developed in the first season carry all the way through to the end, through season seven. And that's something that you don't see a heck of a lot with episodic television. Usually most shows you'll have that, that, you know, that season arc, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And the shield certainly has that, but the events from season one and season two certainly carry over to the show's, uh, to the show's end. And so there's a lot of things we can say about it, but you guys, you guys did a wonderful job uh, really uh, uh, picking apart that show and what made it stand out for the time. Thank you ever so much, and shout out to guest on that episode, uh, Court of Cinema Psyops. He does a lot of kind of what you do, where he'll it, he'll take various movies, sometimes very low grade or low brow, if you will, but he's seen them enough times to where he can pretty much. Sometimes the movie won't be the best, but he'll put more thought into the themes that are present in it, regardless of whether or not the filmmakers were trying to get that deep and. Uh, he tackles a lot of horror and exploitation movies and he was just perfect for that episode. Cause we were just like, Hey, what's a franchise we could probably do. And he's like, how about we try the shield? Cause there's aside from the current events echoing that one, how about we also just kind of tackle how this is just an unusual serialized show. This was the breaking bad of its day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Well, okay. So let's, let's go to this particular film. I know that uh, you and I have been in correspondence and uh, you were extremely gracious. I think you said that you'd be willing to chat any, anything that was Dolph. So I really do appreciate you uh, uh, being open to, to tackling just about anything, but um, yeah, there is this little film that, uh, that Dolph did. Uh, It was released back in uh, 2012 and it's sadly, it's kind of really gone under the radar by many, especially by myself. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I've, I've been going in chronological order, but this was one film that, um, 
I really just kind of glossed over. And that's, I don't think that's mitigating the film in any me by any means, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, it's just that one that, uh, you know, it's not the greatest, but it's certainly not his worst either. Yeah. I totally concur. And uh, I, I was with you. I would, you know, I would scan the various video stores and uh, on back when streaming was becoming a thing for every other site and using other third party sites, but is like this one just kept flying under me. And I was just like, well, I do want to check this out. Cause I do love me a good, you know, desperate hours or panic room type movie that can either make it claustrophobic or mix in some horror and mystery elements with some otherwise decent action. And so after dark films, you know, I always, for whatever reason, accidentally associated with Joel Silver. Yes. Acclaimed, you know, matrix lethal weapon, diehard producer. Uh, he was only like uh, partially involved with this. Uh, the main head of that was Courtney Solomon, who you might know from infamous movies such as an American haunting and dungeons and dragons. But yeah, after dark film was kind of, we, we talk about video on demand, especially a lot with Dolph's movies, but it was, this was kind of when it was first becoming a thing when in the mid uh, uh, 2000s, early 2010s. And now it's second nature, especially with COVID taking over. But Back then, this was kind of, they were still testing the waters with this, saying, hey, let's buy all these various horror mystery movies and then put some output. Let's have some sister companies do this as well. And, you know, Eight Films to Die For was the main uh, gimmick. Uh, That was the name of their brand. And uh, they bought all kinds of movies of various qualities. Uh, Some of them didn't fare too well, but I think this one had some pretty decent fanfare, especially with Dolph's presence in it. Most definitely. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned, but I remember, yeah, the eight films to die for. I think they did that. Did they do that twice? At least five different times, but I lost track of them too because it was every year and you're already trying to catch up with, you know, all the other movies. Because I remember the very first time they did it. It was in, I want to say, 2000, 2006, 2007. And it was like a big deal. It was these small, little scrappy, you know, uh, horror films that uh, were put out by Lionsgate and After Dark. And uh, yeah, um, I remember actually seeing one of them in theaters and not really thinking too much about it. You know, it's funny. I've only seen a, a small handful of the of the horror films that After Dark did. None of them, I think, are... Uh, that fantastic. N- none of them have anything really to write home about except for uh, frontiers. Okay. I did see frontiers and that one, I don't know if you've seen that one or not, but uh, that is a good one. And Holy and Lord. Fairness. Talk about, talk about an assault on the senses. That they one were, is, <laughs> they were right to bid on that one. <laughs> yeah. Have that joined their resume yeah. of titles, but uh, I'm with you. It, I still got a lot of others to check out, but, I think it was kind of one of those where the passion was there, but the results didn't really line up with uh, the concept, but I think it did inspire a lot of them. And this was part of their action mystery uh, spinoff of the brand. And uh, I don't know how well this did box office wise, but you know, it was a limited release, like a lot of Dolph's recent movies. So I'm sure it barely made its money back and it made most of its money back on rentals. Well, yeah, this was uh, this was released as part of the After Dark Action Fest. So, yeah, After Dark had tried their hand with some horror films, and so they wanted to kind of package these action titles, and they released them all on the same day. I remember it was on a mm-hmm. Friday uh, back in uh, the spring of 2012. So these were all 
premium video on demand releases. And so if we just look at the crop of films that we had stash house, obviously um, we had dragon eyes with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Kung Lee. Yeah. That one was directed by John Hyams. Uh, we had transit with Jim Caviezel, uh, the Philly kid, which was an MMA drama with Michael Jai White and mm-hmm. then El Gringo um, starring Scott Adkins. I will say that that was kind of a pricey weekend for me, uh, at least through my cable provider, because I did rent Dragon Eyes, Stash House <laughs> and El Gringo all that weekend. And I will say, having seen all of these films, El Gringo is actually the best one of the bunch. Interestingly, El Gringo is actually also directed by um, Eduardo, Eduardo Rodriguez, who directed this film. Yeah, you you did good interviewing him because, you know, when you were picking his brain, he really did just kind of hit home on what he learned at that uh, Florida university he went to and how he just was able to blend just budget with creativity. And uh, it, it was wild how he was just best known for doing a lot of horror movies. And here he was kind of going against type and he makes these two back to back action movies. I didn't really like the editing, you know, Gringo, but it is such an underrated Scott Atkins role. I mean, just like, oh, yeah. You, You've never, you've seen him play anti-heroes, but you've never seen him play just kind of a drifter on the run, just continually finding trouble in a total spaghetti western tribute. You know, <laughs> well, and there's what's cool about El Gringo is there's something going on in that particular film. I mean, we're going to be getting to Stash House here in a minute, but if you look at Dragon Eyes and uh, and this film Stash House, there's not a heck of a lot going on. The characters are more or less just kind of wandering around throughout the duration of the film. I mean, El Gringo, you have Scott Atkins, who is one of the hardest working uh, actors in the action genre today. I think we can agree. Mm-hmm. And that one, he is delivering, uh, you know, tenfold. What's also interesting about this particular film, Stash House, I don't know if you noticed this. I, I really didn't notice this until I started doing research for the film, um, but it was written by Gary Spinelli, who yeah. later... He, yeah, he later went on to write the uh, the Tom Cruise movie American Made. I was really impressed by that. And uh, I think, it you know, this was a good launching point. Someone clearly saw it and just gave him another opportunity after doing a few brief uh, TV recurring writing gigs and rewriting the box office flop that was Chaos Walking. He got to do American Made. And, but like you said, it's just a very atypical, you know, biography movie, which is darkly humorous and has Tom Cruise playing against type. And but I think this was a good starting point is like so basically you're taking a very formulaic genre and you got to be very creative with it because, you know, you only got two million to make this movie. <laughs> and you know, we'll, we'll detail it a little more. But uh, I was really just intrigued by how this uh, Homeland uh, our home invasion movies were really kind of popping up here and there, but they weren't kind of really constant. They, and now with, you know, the purge came out a year later after this. And so now it's just second nature, but it was kind of interesting how, uh, you know, other movies had kind of done kind of the cyber smart house, but most of them were either infamous or just very forgettable. And this one decided, Hey, we'll use that as part of the gimmick, but that's not the only part of the gimmick. We still got these two unusual home invaders. We still, got a happy couple who's not really happy. And I was just really just glad to finally see this though, because it didn't feel like it was restricted by its budget at all. Did No, no. Yeah. I, I think considering what they had to work with, um, what they ended up pulling off with this film is, is pretty notable. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I really give it uh, some merit there. I mean, you already said it, but yeah, this is, you know, if you really break it down, this is basically, 
another confined siege thriller, okay, which is a genre in itself. We've seen this before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, the prototype for this particular uh, film is uh, Rio Bravo. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the original film that kind of yeah. started this where you so have precinct 13. You yeah. Know. Yeah. You, you have your people who are locked up in this uh, in this place and the people who are trying to get in. And I think when you're working with a, uh, a concept like that or a conceit like that, then, yeah, the the building itself or the confined space itself becomes a character. OK, oh, totally. you know and- what I mean? And, and and that's kind of my big, you know, complaint with this film, I will say. I mean, we're kind of jumping to the midpoint in my notes. But, I mean, okay, this film, I mean, if you look at it, this film is basically a rehash of Panic Room, maybe with some touches of Pacific Heights and other, you know, other thrillers of that nature. It, it's pretty much, it's pretty much the ultimate uh, living nightmare for the upper class where you have, you know, these, these, this couple who we think everything is perfect in their marriage and suddenly someone is kind of invading their, uh, invading their property and will they get out alive? The, the, the big thing that kind of frustrated me about this film is okay. If you look at a film like panic room, for example, Mm-hmm. Yes, that panic room, which is inside that giant um, New York apartment or that New York building that is there, that is such a character, okay? Um, David Fincher in that film really takes the time in uh, providing tons of exterior shots that just kind of marvel at this building, which is what you need if your lead characters are going to be trapped inside this confined space. What frustrated me about this, and I'm, I'm assuming it, it had to do with budget, is we really don't get other than when Brianna Evigan and Sean Ferris show up to the, to the property, to the house. That's pretty much it in terms of exterior shots. We really don't see much else at any point. That's a fair point. It, it could have definitely used more of that. And you didn't know if they were just pressed for time or shot, you know, day for night kind of stuff like they usually do on some of these rush sets. But yeah, no, I mean, it, I could. I did. You also feel like this is just kind of a typical Joel Silver kind of production because, like, the music was very similar to the Matrix and, and even the computer. Is like I felt like that was kind of a throwback to other movies he had done, cyber fillers like Swordfish. And by the end of the movie, uh, I almost got vibes of Ricochet. You might remember that Denzel mm-hmm. Washington movie he did, yeah, uh, back in the nineties. And uh, he kind of just you know the character is framed and. <laughs> going against time, trying to stop the psycho. And uh, I, I just felt like he kind of took just leftovers from his other movies and obviously not as great, but still kind of a, uh, I've been blessed to actually know people who have no been, been able to meet Joel Silver. Uh, one of them is director Wick Kaya Sayanada, And he confirmed a lot of what I've heard where it's just, Joel is just passionately just loves movies. He, he knows how to talk the business for the investors and do just just various crowd placers. So I've just always been impressed by him compared to other big name producers because he wants to do just a slam bang Friday movie. And anytime he's had a flop, I still understood why he got behind it at first before it just went to hell in a handbasket due to creative and, you know, interest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at him in his prime, I mean, yeah, I think Joel Silver was synonymous with some of the greatest action movies throughout the 90s. I mean, let's face it. I mean, the one that I always kind of like to cite is, I mean, it's extremely trashy and dopey, but uh, the movie Fair Game. 
with uh, you know Cindy Crawford yeah. and, and William Baldwin. I mean, that right. movie is so just it's 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 just dumb. I mean, let's be honest. But there are action sequences in it, okay, that are just amazing. I mean, it, it's really kind of. I mean, yes, okay. I want to stress, it's not a great movie, and the lead characters are insanely annoying. But the way in which it's shot, you know, the great thing about Joel Silver is every one of his movies when the characters are outside, for example, walking along the streets, the streets all kind of glisten. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he always the photography the, is just really, really striking. Joel Silver definitely grew up loving just classic forties noir. And just, he would always just make sure that if the director, whoever he brought on, who had promise, who he saw at a festival is like, if you don't know who your cinematographer is, trust me, I'll find someone mm-hmm. who can make this look better. I'll, I will give my rival Jerry Bruckheimer a run for his money. <laughs> well, if we, okay. So if you look at this film, I mean, we, we've kind of danced around it, but I mean, the premise is basically, it, it's pretty simple. Okay. We have Dolph who is once again, playing the villain. I mean, this is something that he's proven on multiple occasions that he's quite good at. So it only makes sense if you want an imposing force to be, to, you know, be an intimidating bad guy. Dolph is your man. In this particular film, we have a young couple played by uh, Sean Ferris and Brianna Evigan. They buy this house. Okay, their their names are David and Amy Nash. So we have some, mm-hmm. you know, pretty standard prototypical American names right there. And I guess basically, uh, sorry about my dog upstairs. Um, <laughs> basically. Sean Ferris, he springs this on his wife. Okay. So his character works at a bank. So he was privy to this dream house being on the market and it being this, uh, this steal of the deal. Okay. He's also aware, we find out later on in the film, but he's also aware of the fact that the owner committed suicide, which is a fact that, uh, yeah, he kept that hidden from his wife. Um, this scene is shown at the beginning of the movie where this character, uh, uh, kills himself in a uh, church confessional booth really shocking and really gets in the mood for what's about to follow as opposed to just feeling, you know, separate and not well interconnected with the rest of the events. Most definitely. What did you think of the, the leads? Okay. So, I mean, cause we, we do have to discuss them to an extent. So we have yeah. Sean, uh, Sean Ferris um, and Brianna Evigan. Now with regard to Sean Ferris, I will say, you know, he's a, he's a decent, good looking actor. I mean, he kind of looks like just kind of like I said earlier, the, prototypical regular dude, I guess, if you will, I, I would say he probably hit the height of his career in 2008 and the film, uh, never back down. And he's, mm-hmm. you know, he hasn't really reached the success of that uh, little film regarding Brianna Evigan. She pretty much has the exact same qualities as uh, yeah. Sean Ferris, right? <laughs> she's, she's good looking and her claim to fame are those step up movies, right? Yeah, and they both, fun fact, guys, have a connection to Dolph. Sean is later in Female Fight Club with Dolph, and Brianna is later in Puncture Wounds. But I think this, I think you and I can both agree this is their best outing with Dolph. And Oh, most definitely. And I think they kind of, they're just very capable actors, but they've been restricted to just, again, mainly B, C-list movies. You know, Brianna's mainly just done the Hallmark Lifetime route with a few cult horror movies and interesting TV spots. And Sean, I think after uh, Never Back Down, he just realized, okay, I'm here to stay. I'm going to keep doing a lot of these made-for-video horror movies and martial arts thrillers. It's, it's my wheelhouse now. Uh, do you think this is their best hour in general? Um, n- n- oh, boy. Um, 
I guess compared to the other films that you cited, then, yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting about Sean Ferris is, yeah, he he stars in these uh, these very low rent uh, B grade independent films. I think he kind of knows what he's working with, and he he does try. I mean, you know, the the scenes at the end of the movie when uh, he's having his uh, fingers broken by uh, by Dolph. I mean, yes. he's he's really in pain right there in those scenes. You know what I mean? So I think he tries. He did a he did a small uh, movie that uh, it's okay. It has a really cool cast, but that's really a, about all there is to to say about it. But he did this film called Pawn. I don't know if yeah. you saw that one or not. Excellent. With yeah, you with know. Michael Chiklis <laughs> and uh, Forrest Whitaker. It's not the greatest movie, and it's purposely trying to be confusing just to kind of make it appear smart, if you will. But he's the lead in that one, and he does okay. And Brianna Evigan, I mean. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't seen her pop up in a heck of a lot uh, after this, but uh, you know there was that period where she seemed to be the it gal. Oh, uh, fun fact: she was also in a really good uh, home invasion movie that actually involved both a hurricane and a tiger called Burning Bright. Two years to this, so I think whoever her casting agent and PR people were, I think they said, "Hey, wait, here's a potential screen queen we got her on our hands. Let's any home invasion filler, we'll just send the script." Her way. <laughs> we'll swap out Dolph Lundgren for a tiger, apparently. Uh, what do well, you think of John Huertas, who plays the other secondary villain? Yeah, you know, he, oh boy, I was going to be getting to him in a minute. Yeah, he's pretty much the mouthpiece for this drug syndicate organization. Um, it's funny because he's pushing Dolph around uh, you know, most of the film before Dolph pretty much uh, shows him who's boss and and, and and kills him but it's interesting yeah i mean we're we're told okay from the offset of this film from the trailer and everything like that that dolph is our main villain and it's interesting how this other guy is doing all of the talking he he appears to be running the show but as a viewer it's kind of like no this well first of all he's not intimidating we can just get that out of the way but yeah it's 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 pretty clear that he's he's not going to be the uh the villain who lives to the end right I, he's a punk, but I think that works in his favor. Just it, it's fun to have a villain who is basically a bully. He, they think they're more intimidating than they when they're actually not, you know. But he's just again, he you get a bit of a backstory for him, he, kind of, you know. That here are these two home invaders, and they're dressed as cops, and obviously, you know, our heroes fortunately are not ridden as you know petulant. They know something's off. And you're like, yeah, they're. They're totally asking us stuff that a cop would never ask us. <laughs> they're not being subtle because they're just getting impatient. They've been waiting to rob this house for days and months even. And fun fact, John Huartis, one of his first roles was playing Sammy, one of the terrorists in Joel Silver's earlier production, Executive Decision. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So I've been a fan since The Shield and uh, Generation Kill. And I've always thought he's been just a very reliable character actor who's Again, much like most of these guys, they've mostly just been doing guest stops, guest spots. He's currently on This Is Us, but I haven't watched that yet because I prefer action movies versus melodrama. But uh, yeah, no, uh, like you say, you you know he's not going to be the main villain. There's just no way. But at the same time, uh, he's pretty much just uh, he's the mouth of all these other unseen villains that we have yet to see. And we ultimately don't truly see. But well, yeah, this this film could be a stage play. In a lot totally. of ways, you know what I mean, and Way so yeah, so dark. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 waiting. You know, they they're all working for a uh, for an unseen drug syndicate cartel, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, we don't we don't see any of the other uh, members of this um 
of this nefarious gang. Um, you already said it, but the thing that I think is interesting is uh, uh, Dolph's character, Andy Spector, he's, he shows up to the party late. Which is mm-hmm. which is really interesting. So Ray, that's the uh, the John Huertas character. He's been scoping out the house for a bit before Spectre arrives. But once Spectre arrives, Ray, it's very clear that Ray has an almost disdain for Spectre. I, I guess we're to assume maybe because uh, Dolph is just so good at his job. I guess we can assume. But <laughs> I, I will say Dolph's arrival in the film is really really cool. I mean, only only Dolph can play stepping out of a car and straightening up his uh straightening his suit jacket and everything only he can make that look as cool as he does but i love the way he uh he enters the film and i will also say the way dolph plays the character for the first two acts of the film this is my other like gripe with the film but the way he plays the character for the first half of the film is really really interesting i mean he's this company man who's he's calm he's cool he's collected i mean he's the way he plays it where is where he's pretty much okay yeah he's doing a shady job to support his wife and family okay and i thought that was another interesting touch we see his character taking personal phone calls at various points in the in the film he has nicely combed hair and wears a suit i mean you can tell that this is a job that you know maybe he knows is a little immoral but hey he's punching a clock it has a paycheck attached to it and he's He's gonna do it. Totally. What, what did you, I, I put this in my notes? What did you think of how he just first enters, like just coming out of the car, but just very slowly and not in an over the top way, like any other filmmaker would have probably just done an over stylized slow motion shot. But no, he gets out, and we get to see it from the actual security camera's point of view. So mm-hmm. we, we feel we the audience feel like a voyeur. It's like, yeah, this is something we shouldn't. We have no business looking into. But here we are. We're looking at this from the camera's viewpoint, the house's viewpoint, so to speak. <laughs> and I, and I really like that scene. I also really like the score in that scene. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the score that they're employing in that scene is really cool. And just like I said, the way Dolph is playing it. Okay. He gets out of the car slowly. He's not, he's not intense really at all. I mean, he is, he's a company man. And that's something that when I spoke to Eduardo Rodriguez, he reiterated that as well is that, yeah, okay. Dolph is playing this character. He is a company man who, you know, works for this syndicate. And uh, this is just another job for him. You know what I mean? And so that's what I really like. It's it's interesting because, yeah, when he exits the vehicle, it's really cool how Dolph plays this. He slowly uh, hooks the silencer onto his pistol. You know what I mean? And it's those small little character touches where we can see that, okay, this is a character who is tired of his job and he's almost resistant to even continuing. What's wrong with you? Let the keypad we can't get in now. We need the kid alive. What are you doing? Things have escalated here. It's your first day. Hey, go ahead. Hit the panic button. Call it in. It's gonna look bad on both of us. Let's just finish our business here. And then you and I can stab each other in the backs later. Okay? Yeah, he, he's not proud of what he does, but yet he does it because it's like 
violence just has a way with him. This is all he knows. And I think this speaks volumes to Dolph as well, especially with the many people you've been fortunate enough to interview is like Dolph is basically both, you know, a very talented, just kind man and a businessman. And he knows how to balance it out. And I'm wondering if that's how he saw eye to eye with Joel Silver, because that's kind of what I've known Joel to be. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, uh, be a kind, courteous guy and, you know, don't go, don't go out of your way to be an asshole. And at the same time, that, that's dull still. It's like no, no one, you're, you're going to be damned if you find anything awful about working with Dolph. And uh, again, yeah, his character, he's done all these intimidating brutes for years and he's had years to just know how to just kind of perfect just the intimidation factor, as well as just other small touches that most any other actor would just not really give a second bat an eye at. They'd just be like, where am I standing? Okay, cool. I'll play to the camera that way. And, I don't think he was concerned at all with the camera. He's just like, here's how I'm going to walk and here's how I'm going to speak. And, you know, we all know the story and how it's going to play out and how it's going to end. And, you know, I'm just along for the ride. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's an excellent segue because it's really not necessary to go through this film beat by beat or point by point, scene no. by scene, because what follows is a fairly routine siege thriller. We've seen these type of films before. So this really isn't a heck of a lot, uh, you know, very different from those. We have the two cartel associates terrorizing the couple they're trying to get inside and then we have the nash couples this is sean ferris and brianna evigan fighting to keep them out and you know stay alive in the process because we find out yeah the the house was property of the drug syndicate only Mm -hmm. apparently this is something that really gets muddled and i don't know if you felt this way or not either i would have liked just a little bit more details here exposition here but okay so i'm assuming maybe you can help me clear this up the house was property of the drug syndicate. The Correct. owner, however, was feeling pressure from the cartel. Okay. He offed himself at the beginning of this film. Okay. So right. this is, this is the character. Obviously we saw at the beginning of the film who shot himself in the church. And so somehow this house slipped through the cracks with the bank, etc. I'm it, it. They, what's interesting is Dolph gives all of this information to Sean Ferris as they're talking through the door, but he says it so quick that it's almost as if, I mean, I don't know if you felt this way, but I almost kind of wonder if the writer and the production was just like, we'll do this in one quick line of dialogue because in the end it's okay. Good guys are trapped in this house. Bad guys want to get into this house. House belongs to the cartel, but we're not going to spend a heck of a lot of time explaining how in the heck this young yuppie couple attained it. You know what I mean? How they were able to buy the house for the steal that they did. And for some reason, did I miss something? Did they leave their phones in the car? <laughs> I, they did because in that, so in that hilarious okay. scene at the beginning, they decided to throw their phones in the back seat. Yeah. which let's be honest, a, a young 20 something year old couple, they're not going to be doing that. And while this was before, Facebook was really taken off. It was one of those. It's like, yeah, they mu- he must have really just promised her the world. Because, <laughs> yes, they come here to basically buy this house and then make out in it. And, of course, that doesn't happen because they find the drug that are stashed away. But I am with you. I do. I, I, I don't. It's certainly possible. We've all seen all various movies of every kind, good or bad. And it could certainly have been possible that there could have been a line in there and they just felt it was too much exposition or they just felt, hey, 
you know, it's trickling away from what audiences we feel do actually want to see. We got to focus on the content versus the substance. Most definitely. Well, I mean, yeah, you just said it. Okay. We find out, um, yeah, this is a stash house for the cartel. The house was used to store tons of heroin, but okay. What, what I did kind of really like this scene here. So David Nash, he says, okay, this is what you want. You want all your property and all this heroin back. So what he does, he bags it all up in these trash bags. He offers it to Ray Inspector. I did really, really like this scene. So Dolph's character, Spectre, just callously and slowly walks over to the, uh, the, bags of, uh, the bags of heroin, picks them up, and he disposes it into a trash can. And he has a wonderful line that he says where he goes, what would I want with that poison? And I did really like how he played that part. Oh, totally. Your your movie is only as good as a villain. And if you and unfortunately, you know, nowadays uh, we got just so many people who just feel like let's just hire an actor and let's just have them ham it up. And it's like that's just not enough all the time. You know, you do need to have just some kind of cool backstory. And I do like how, like you say, we're still for this point slightly. I don't want to say rooting for him, but we're feeling sympathy for him because it's clear that okay not cool. You know, he's a gun for hire and his family's been taken hostage and he's possibly going to have to kill these guys out of reluctance. And it's so cool how he does this double cross that you don't expect. And that helps the movie just stand out a bit more. It's like, okay, cool. This is a plot twist, but it didn't feel like something random, like a cheap thrill, like someone randomly gets a gun or assembles a death trap, you know, for the home invaders. Like now we get some time on the villain and they actually get to, double cross the other villains. <laughs> well, I mean, the I already kind of mentioned it, but there are a couple um a, a couple issues that I have in terms of uh in terms of the story. Okay. And I, I get yeah. it. Look, this was this was a small little independent film that, you know, premiered on on demand. So I shouldn't be expecting too much. But the one, like I said earlier, is okay, if you're gonna I mean, and this is just my opinion, but I think anybody else would agree. If you're gonna do a confined thriller, okay, then that that building that structure needs to be a character in itself okay if if it's all going to take place in one location one set then yeah you need to really establish that 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 set that setting you know what i mean and the house like i said we don't get uh, more than uh, a single exterior shot that's pretty much it um i do like there is a interesting touch where you know they establish that it's a high tech house where the the key is a thumb drive that uses an actual thumbprint. I would love to see more of that. <laughs> yeah, they don't show us any of that. Yeah, uh, they don't show us any of that. Um, what they do show us a lot of, almost almost to a fault, I would think, is, okay, the house is loaded with tons of security cameras. And so it feels to me like almost 45% of this film is all shown through security cam footage. And just narratively, I don't know if you felt this way or not, but narratively, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the in the confines of the film, okay? Because for whatever reason, the conversations that are happening between uh, Dolph's character, Spectre, and this Ray character are all seen through the night vision security cameras, which would mm-hmm. be fine, okay? I would say this is fine if we're to assume that this is how David and Amy Nash are watching them. Okay. If they're, they're watching their, their predators, if you will, through the security camera footage. However, we never see that, that happening. Okay. We never see them monitoring these cameras. And even if they were, there is no possible way that they would even be able to decipher 
these conversations. So it is an odd stylistic touch that I can only wonder. I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but I, when I finished watching it, I kind of thought to myself, okay, why was there so much security cam footage, especially showing the private conversations between our two villains? And the only reason I can think of is, okay, stylistically, maybe it looks a little, a little interesting. It's different. But I almost kind of wonder if maybe that kind of hid the budgetary limitations, if you will. Like it was kind of a band-aid that kind of hid the fact that this was taking place on a, on a set that maybe wasn't fully built all the way. I don't know. I think it's all the above, but it's also, I think, a style choice. But I'll half agree. I think it needed another establishing shot. Just a cool just looming in on what the computer sees versus, okay, let's just jump into the fold and just pull a Steven Soderbergh. Where now we're just experimenting with new cameras and new technology at this point in 2012. So I, I dug it, but I would have liked a little more. Is like, okay, it, most people, you know, they're not like you or I, where they're just kind of open to various possibilities. Most of us kind of want a little bit of an extra establishing shot. Is like, okay, who's seeing this? Is this the camera's viewpoint, or is this the protagonist looking through the camera? You know? Yeah. And I think we're definitely with the dramatic cameras. Is like, yeah, that these characters are too worried, you know, shitting their pants, just trying to make sure that they can survive the night since they don't have access to their phones, and you know, the gates are all locked. It's really more of a mystery movie, mild thriller. And the only real action sequence you get is when they make the first escape attempt where, you know, Sean's character falls in the pool. Well, and we, we find out that our villains, um, as we talked about already, yeah, they don't really want the product. Okay. But they want more so what is hiding in the house. Okay. So spoiler, this is story-wise another slight issue that I had with the film. We find out that hidden under the floorboards in this house is a drug czar that yep. the car that the yeah that the what the cartel has kidnapped and held prisoner and i mean okay there there are okay i have no issues with the fact okay that they want this drug czar that they kidnapped the problem that i had with this is pretty much not much detail to almost zero detail to be perfectly honest is given to this twist here other than a couple passing lines so if you're not paying attention you may completely miss that plot point. I I dug this part, but I'm with you. You know, this is a Sunday night movie. It is not a Friday night movie where you're talking about it for days saying that was badass. This is more of a casual, you know, this is Joel Silver's light project. And uh, I, I dug uh, the Millard Hansen drug, uh, a dead drug czar. I thought that was good at just illustrating that. It's like, okay, they don't... I guess you, that's what Hitchcock would refer to as a MacGuffin. Is like they're not here for the house or the money; they're here for the body, which has again the contents have access to all this various other material that relates to it. So it was kind of just a fun, just twist. But I will uh, again. This needed a little more screen time. Needed a little more hinting that something was up instead of just kind of cutting quickly to the twist. Well, yeah, I mean this this gov- this government drug czar. He's given his character is literally giving nothing. I mean, yeah. he really doesn't even get, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even, I well, and before that, I mean, he is, uh, I guess, I guess we're to assume what he was being offered as a trade by the cartel. I yeah, guess we thought that the banker who, you know, uh, is killed, you know, commits suicide after confessing to the priest was the main, uh, culprit in this whole scheme. And is like, no, he's just one of many victims. So it would have definitely been kind of cool to kind of get some kind of, I don't want to say Scarface because that's very cliche, but just other kind of 
cartel element, like some, I mean, and I'm not sure what else we could have added. That's the other thing. I want to be constructive with this critique. I, I don't want a sinister uh, voice over the phone that's been done to death, but it would have been cool to just kind of have some other kind of written fret or maybe a text message that one of the robbers receives. And we're just left to assume that again, this is, this is a cartel that really means business. They are not being sloppy. Well, what's interesting is he, he doesn't wake up until Brianna Evigan, you know, uh, goes down into the basement, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of like he, he didn't wake up by any of the commotion or the shots being fired or any of the, the, stru- <laughs> the, the destruction that was happening in the upstairs. I mean, when, when uh, the Ray character, what is it? Uh, what is it? Sean Ferris and Brianna Evigan do. They shoot like a couple flares up through the chimney and that, that knocks uh, the Ray character off the, uh, off the roof. And so he burns the side of his face. Like he didn't hear any of that. Okay. And so what this can all be chalked up to is just simply plot convenience. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, well, and this is where Joel Silver pretty much takes leftovers from Die Hard, where it's just like, okay, you know, a villain's going to screw up. And at the same time, you got to have a cool death because, you know, it is an action movie. But like you say, is like that people do mumble over shoulders in real life, where it's like, yeah, no, you technically can't hear from that far across the room. And same thing with sound traveling and silence pistols. It's like eventually you are expecting to see some neighbor across the street saying, what the hell is going on? You know, <laughs> unfortunately yeah. we don't get enough of that real world physics and so yeah, it is plot induced uh, stupidity as video gamers would say. And it works for this, but it's still a little annoying because it could have been a little more plausible. They could have uh, had someone had the, uh, that robber attempt to stop them from sending that flare. And the police are also very heavy handed when they finally get to that third chapter. It's like they instantly assume that Sean is the bad guy. It's like they're yeah. taking everyone's word for the benefit of the doubt. It's like, I don't know, man, I think I would keep my eye on Dolph. <laughs> well, and okay. And you and I were kind of talking about this back and forth. I don't know how you felt about this or not, but okay. We talked about how the first couple acts, Dolph is playing a really cool villain. Okay. Yet in the third act of the film, and I don't know if this was as jarring to you as it was with me, but the third act of the film, Dolph's villain character takes a huge twist. Okay. So yeah. we see him at various points, you know, in the, in the first couple acts of the film, we see him at various points. He's taking calls from his wife. And like I stated er- earlier, it's very clear that he's, he's merely a businessman. He's not entirely content with what he does, but then, okay. Then in the third act, he mercilessly kills Ray and he becomes this Michael Myers esque boogeyman. Okay, now I'm not saying that Dolph cannot play an unstoppable beast of a villain. You know, I mean, we've seen him. <laughs> okay, obviously there's Ivan Drago, that's the obvious one, but Andrew Scott. I mean, so I'm not saying that we can't do that. And when it's on display here, it's great. Okay, what is odd though is how they set this character up in the beginning, okay, as being this reluctant company man. So then when we suddenly see this shift without much reason, mind you, it's a juxtaposition. I mean, I think all they would have needed is him take, he takes a quick phone call from a member of the syndicate where the, the, the syndicate member tells him, look, I have your wife and daughter. If you want them back, you will see this mission through. 
and get me my property. But we don't get that. It's a really just, like I said, jarring shift there that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I thought they kept him in mystery enough, so it didn't feel like a cheat to me. It's funny. Oh, interesting. It didn't. Okay. I I didn't think of the Halloween connection, but I'm sure there's some inspiration there. It it was, the twist is kind of what made it stand out more for me. Oh, really? Okay. Otherwise, beef thriller, just because it was at least, uh, I lost all sympathy for him by that point. And I thought he was just, again, just going to be a typical, just, I'm a a heavy, but, you know, I'm going to find a way to not harm you and, and at the same time, you know, I still want what's mine. I want to steal some of this money and kind of screw over the guys who have my family hostage. But yeah, no, I, I dug that he's just been a manipulator this whole time. He's just been playing it cool. And I think that, again, that just goes back to Dolph's persona. He can play it cool in any kind of role, let alone he's just smooth in real life. And I think he just got to be more playful here in that, you know, he gets to actually be very just calm with the authority figures. And again, I, I just didn't expect this movie to take that twist. I've seen so many other movies like firewall and plenty of other panic room knockoffs that were doing this just so much worse. And I thought it was just a relief that they, they just kept kind of just keeping you, uh, the, the mystery just, uh, simple and then just working their way up for a few things. But I, I'm still with you that, that the house needed way more detailing because you forget about it by the second act. You, you, it doesn't even register. You're just like, okay, it's just another darkly lit corridor for the hero to escape through. <laughs> you know what would have been kind of cool? I mean, again, I mean, so, okay, you liked the uh, the shift in his character. I I was not 100% on board with it, but what I thought would be kind of cool is, okay, yeah, we see him in the beginning taking these phone calls and everything. Obviously, you know, we see that, he has other things on his mind. What might've been kind of cool is, okay, if he's able to get into the house with the young couple, but then he kind of becomes their savior in a way. And he teams up with them to take on the larger threat. Okay. Where the cartel then sends their entire army to retrieve it. And suddenly that would have been way better. That would have been kind of cool. Or better yet do a typical, uh, what they did in a lot of these movies, post nineties, just have the cartel guys, you know, uh, knock out a bunch of security guards, kill them, take their, uh, you know, outfits, and then just storm in. Once again, and being police imposters. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they did not go that route. They just had the usual cops show up late and are complete idiots. <laughs> I did. I did really have to laugh at an unintentional uh, acting moment from Sean Ferris. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if it uh, cracked you up like it did me. He but. tried, but there are a bunch of those moments where, again, we've seen so many of these B movies, and they just can't help it. There's got to be a moment where an actor just plays to the camera, and you don't know if they don't do enough takes or if it's just it's just not in their range. But he's got to just go no, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so well, that that was it. I was I was dying. I was dying <laughs> over with laughter at the part when. Oh, uh, so yeah, so Dolph's character. So we, we haven't really talked about it, but there are some other um, side characters that uh, that come in, where basically um, one of Brianna Evigan's friends comes over to uh, to kind of give them a housewarming gift or whatever, and so Dolph's character he just callously kills their best friend, who is also a yuppie. Okay, we should say that as well. But just how he callously kills her, and I I just was cracking up at the scene where Sean Ferris is on the floor cradling her body and he cries come on man you know yeah, I mean? like, not again never a line that works it, you, 
crying is good enough. And if you don't want to cry, if that's just not good enough, just again, just be, you know, body language would have been suffice much better. Just, yeah. All I need is a guy just injuring his hand, just slugging the wall, just being like, no, you know? <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like, and I think it's just the problem. We, people who've been in this industry long enough, they just do a lot of the same stuff that they've been doing for years in all these other blockbuster movies. And half the time, all you need to do is just omit a few other lines that really, you know, me yelling no in slow motion or just saying, come on, man, that does not contribute anything. <laughs> that just, again, that just makes it cheesy. And yeah, I, I wish they could have deleted that scene. <laughs> well, if we go to the ending, okay. So the final shootouts that take place. So Spectre takes the Amy character hostage. He is pretending to be her father here. Um, the problem is that as a character, I would say, he doesn't have much to work with. And as seen in the film, she's able to scramble away quickly, allowing the police on scene to shoot him dead. I mean, like I said, it doesn't, okay. He said, he's saying, all right, I want, I'm going to pretend to be your father. And the only way he's being her father is he just throws on a pair of glasses. Cause I guess glasses equal dad, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, he throws this on and he says, I'm going to be your father so that we can escape. But, there's not a whole lot of threat there because I mean, yes, it is Dolph and he is imposing, but it's not believable in any way. And you can even see that the, the police officers are kind of like, this isn't your dad. I mean, that's like what I, I said, didn't like either. And yeah. We, they, they're really not given much else. You know what I mean? To work with there. And uh, it would have, you know, he could have, uh, there could have at least been a scene where he kind of just, did he still have a gun on him on his person at that point, or had he lost it during the other scuffles? I can't remember. He had it under his coat, so he had okay. it up against a rib cage and was pushing. All I would have needed but... before the cops knocked on the door was him just saying, "Do it," you know, something <laughs> instead of gritting his teeth and then going back to being cool. But unfortunately, yeah, she played along, and she could have easily just saved him all this trouble and said, you know, she could have even done something worse, been like, "This guy, he's a pedophile, he's a kidnapper, <laughs> kill him," you know, yeah. And and she's able to get away. I mean, she's able to literally, what does she do? She kicks him or something like that. I really can't remember, but she is a knife. Remember in the, that's right. Vehicle. And yeah. So she is able to get away from him before, uh, before Dolph is unceremoniously blasted by, uh, all the police who have arrived on scene. So I guess he, I guess he does get a pretty, a fairly spectacular death, but in my opinion, I don't think it was, um, entirely, deserved by that point i i wanted a little bit more in terms of uh again in terms of his character in terms of why he's doing what he's doing maybe um, another plot twist where we see car- maybe like training day we see some cartel guys just outside saying oh the business isn't done yet <laughs> that would have been kind of cool yeah like okay oh man i like that actually they're all <laughs> able to escape and he is on his way home to his wife and family or whatever it may be and then the cartel pull him over and they light up his car. You know what I mean? Like that could have been, or even just saying is like, or better yet, just like we will always be looking over you. It's like you're yeah. not going to have a moment to breathe. We'll be looking, pegging every landline. We got other people on our payroll. We can, we'll check out all the trashy motels. You literally will have to hide in a sewer if you want to escape us. And yeah, unfortunately, like you say, you know, most filmmakers would have. They either feel like they have to leave something open for a sequel or they got to do too much and it doesn't mash up with the rest of the movie. And 
But that's this is where it felt the most Joel Silver moments, but it still feels like it's just a little too much recycling in those last 10 minutes from his better blockbusters. <laughs> so, okay, our, our two heroes, if you will, David and Amy Nash, they reunite, and in a tearful moment, as David is laid out on a stretcher, um, <laughs> the, the, poor David, man, he's had all of his fingers on one hand broken. He's gotten shot, what, in the arm? Or, excuse me, in the Shut shoulder. The arm. He had to knock out a cop who was trailing him inside the house. He somehow, much like most of these diehard uh, Panic Room knockoff movies, he's somehow knows Kung Fu. You know, he knows yeah. how to kick a bunch of ass. I think he gets a key because he's, like, trapped in... He escapes through the chimney. No, he escapes through one of the other, like, escape rooms in this safe house. And, yeah, he's able to get out of there. He's got mud, dirt, sweat, and plenty of blood all over his body and yeah he's on the stretcher and uh just heavily injured <laughs> he gets he gets a great uh the final line of the film is he looks at uh brianna evigan and he tells her next time or no excuse me she looks at him sorry as he's on the stretcher and she remarks next time let me pick the house and they both, <laughs> they, and they both start giggling as the credits roll oh, it kind of reminded man. me of the of the final line in uh, in daylight with Sylvester Stallone when oh, Stallone's on the stretcher and he tells Amy Brenneman next time we're taking the train. You know what I mean? Like I might it, have to rewatch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a little silly, but in the end, I think it works considering again, going back to what we said earlier, what this film is at its core is essentially another siege thriller with a yuppie couple being terrorized by, by a nefarious gang. Mm-hmm. And then that's basically what this is. It doesn't try to be anything different. Would I have liked a little bit more in terms of uh, development from Dolph's character, um, more development uh, regarding the cartel and this imprisoned drug czar? Sure. But, um, you know what I mean? Considering what they had to work with, I imagine shooting time couldn't have been uh, that long. I think Didn't what they, they pulled say off. In the trivia, it was like two weeks, three weeks. Two weeks, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, so with only two weeks i think uh they they pulled off a a decent uh a decent time waster i like what you said actually it's it's maybe not friday and saturday night viewing but sunday afternoon viewing it works totally yeah uh, out of the other joel silver movies that he produced for after dark film with his dark castle production that he co-formed with robert zemeckis uh did he was he involved with El gringo can't remember yes yes he was so you ranked that one higher I kind of rank this one way higher. Higher, Obviously, I, I give it way more credibility than Dragon Eyes, which is another movie that has a cool cast, but a very confusing narrative, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Dr- Dragon Eyes is abysmal, which is so such a shame, because, I mean, with John Hyams directing it, I mean, yeah. he's, I think, one of the best uh, independent action directors working nowadays. And then you have Van Damme. But Van Damme, I mean, I think he was on set for only a few days. And Kung Lee... I mean, Kung Lee just is not a compelling lead. Kelly and Peter Weller looking like he's walked in from a totally different movie was a last minute. You know, edition. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I recommend transit, you know, say what you will about Jim Caviezel. He's more batshit crazy than Mel Gibson in real life, but it's one of his better action endeavors in my opinion. And you had a now in that one, it was pretty much the exact same as this movie. Although, as much as I love Elizabeth Rom, her character was just had nothing to do except scream, say, honey, save me, save me. And that got distracting, even though you are treated to some very fun villains in that one. 
but it's ultimately fire the billionth firestorm or diehard in a forest that you've seen. But so yeah, I, I definitely rank this high and would definitely follow it up with El Gringo and Transit. <laughs> so okay, here's the million dollar question. I, I know I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. How about as a Dolph Lundgren movie? Is it something that would that you would recommend for anyone who is a fan of uh, of the Big Swede? Being a fan and much like you, uh, just seeing how over time how his movies have been just so poorly marketed and or just only went straight to HBO in the States after getting theatrical releases in Bulgaria and Japan. Uh, he Again, I think a lot of people are going to just keep checking out his work because now we're in a world where we live in streaming of Tubi and Prime. So I definitely think this is an underrated role for him because, like you say, we haven't ever seen a villain role like for this like him before. And, I mean, unlike all his other awful movies that often involved him fighting CGI beasts like dragons and sharks, this is definitely a standout of the 2010s for me. Yeah. I mean, well, what's interesting is, yeah, I mean, I, we hadn't, we didn't talk about it earlier, but um, this was an, this film was announced in his post expendables boom, as I like to call it. So back in 2010, he had essentially been rediscovered. And I think he, you know, the fact that he also moved back to Los Angeles, that really helped things as well. But yeah, he signed on. I remember reading about this, but he signed on for multiple projects um, that were going to be filmed. They weren't all by the same producers, obviously, but I mean, he was pretty much striking while the iron was hot. Okay. And uh, he was lining himself up with a bunch of projects. So after Expendables, this particular film was announced, as was One in the Chamber and The Package. And if you look at all those films, I mean, we've covered The Package and One in, Cha- One in the Chamber on previous episodes. But I mean, if you look at those films, yes, they are of a lower budget quality, similar to this one. But I would put all three of these films head and shoulders above what we've seen in recent years. Because as I'm sure you've seen as well, the market itself as we know it has really, really dried up, especially the budgets. I mean, these films were made... Where have they gone? Yeah, these these particular films were made, yeah, on budgets that uh, we just simply don't see anymore, that we don't get anymore. And so if you look at this particular film and compare it with... um, uh, I don't know, Shark Lake and Forgotten oh. and even uh, even Female Fight Squad and uh, mm-hmm. Acceleration and God bless him. I mean, he's working, but I mean, mm-hmm. these films were made at a time when we were still getting, uh, th- there was still money and effort being put into these um, lower budget action titles. Well, and it does say a lot when they were able to do so much, like, the, those were with some of the same production companies, like. But there's a huge difference with his Sintel production, The Killing Machine, also known as Icarus, compared to Acceleration, which just looks cheap all around. And it's just such a shame because he was working with some of the same people on uh, just Don't Kill It, which I thought was a fun throwback to his other earlier movies, The Minion and I Come in Peace. But at the same time, it's just not the same. And but like you say, I mean. Uh, now, if we had to compare the other ones that came out around the same time, I mean, Package is kind of a featured cameo role, but it's fun. But those are both, again, Derek Colstead productions and, uh, you know, future writer of John Wick. And one in the chamber, as you brilliantly summed up, you know, it had a limited budget and yet it able was able to paint out its world pretty well without looking like there was a lot of shots that didn't add up. And yet, Icarus, it didn't have the best camera work, but yet its story just really 
displayed really coolly on the professional, you know, history of violence type storyline. And yet here we are with this one and he stills the movie, but it's kind of just restricted, just a simple one and done, just a fun rental. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think the fact, I think the fact that it's confined to one set really in the end kind of works to its favor and works to its advantage, I would say. Well, like, so uh, I'm, yeah, it's definitely better shot, but, like you said before, the story leaves a lot to be desired. So pretty much it could have gone so much worse is kind of how I'm looking at it at this point. There's so much other scenarios where this could have just been absolute, just bonkers bad. <laughs> well, with regard to my recommend, I mean, th- thank you very much, Cam. I mean, yeah, cause I agree with everything that you said. I would say for my recommend, I, I think it's a fine thriller. It is, it is pretty competently made. Um, I think everyone here is delivering a decent performance. Um, Dolph in particular is still quite effective as a villain. I mean, no, regardless of how old the guy gets, I mean, he can, he can play a bad guy and he can do it well. Um, my only real complaint with this villain is it's interesting how I was not a fan of it, but you really, really loved it. So, which I, I can appreciate. I think that's cool, but my only real complaint with was with how his villain character goes from being this reluctant yes man to a complete psychopath who's mercilessly killing everyone and snapping the hero's fingers he almost etc. Looks like defense from falling down in those last 10 minutes <laughs> yeah i mean it's just it's a really jarring shift there but having said all that i think as a whole this film is a fine time waster. Um, I think there's some minor plot holes that if you're really, really thinking about them may bother you. Um, but overall it's decent. I think, you know, the, the best way I can describe it, you've, uh, you and I have already said it, but I think if you've seen similar films like panic room and Pacific Heights, I think this is extremely similar and it really doesn't add much, you much, much new to the, uh, the quote unquote yuppie couple being besieged genre and so on that front i think it uh yeah it works well and uh thank you for also just summing up just uh just how this was able to be similar to other movies without just feeling just completely derivative so i think that's also a sign of a good film or at least a decent one if you can at least have fun and dig the world that it's building for even though it doesn't go the direction you would prefer it to go I still will give much kudos to that compared to one where you're just like paint by numbers, you know what's happening, but you know, 20 scenes before it's actually happened. And this was good at just being able to just kind of make use of a bunch of surprises while they didn't all line up for all of us. And we would have liked to still see some more establishment. It still went by just so fast to where it's still a decent 2am actioner. Well, uh, Thank you very, very much. I had a great time uh, uh, chatting with you, and uh, I really do appreciate this. And uh, before I let you go, is there anything uh, that you're working on or anything you'd like to give a shout-out to? I know you mentioned uh, your podcast, and I know that, yeah, you uh, you write for the Action Elite. But uh, what is uh, coming up that, uh, that we can uh, look forward to seeing or hearing from you? I collaborate uh, at least every five months with Munson's at the Movies. Now, if you don't know who that podcast is, they do a fun uh, movie raider on they, they pick an actor based the wheel picks it more or less. And, you know, it spins around and they have to decide, you know, where this celebrity that they picked, you know, is in terms of relevance, uh, evolving as an actor 
and as their and their resume choices. It's always a blast. They pick, tackled so many underrated and less talked about cult favorites. Uh, I totally encourage everyone to check them out. And and I've been fortunate enough to star in the Keith David episode, and I just wrapped another one with them. <laughs> Very nice. Oh, cool. Well, I'll be including uh, links to uh, to your podcast and in the show notes. But uh, again, thank you very, very much. I had a great time and uh, would love to have you back on. If there's uh, anything coming up in uh, Mr. Lundgren's filmography, let's, let's plan it and pencil it in. All you right? know it, man. I'll be there for any of his choices because uh, Dolph is so worth it. <laughs> right on. Uh, well, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast. 